Let us pray. Father God, thank you for giving us the resurrection. Thank you for giving us Jesus, your son. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us the God, three persons in one. Thank you, creator God of the universe, loving God, heavenly God. Thank you that you look upon little people like us and love us so much. And God, I just pray and give thanks for this holy word which you've given to us. May this seep into all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirits, today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our days. And help us, Lord, to follow you um, wherever you may lead us. And take us, Lord, to places um, and relationship with you that we could not imagine. And, we, and I just, Lord, just ask for your help as I preach your word. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy and mighty name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, that's good enough. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is nice to be back with you. It's nice to be preaching. I, have, I don't think I've, I think it's the first time this year here at St. David's, so... Hopefully, I'm not too rusty. So, but I actually, I've been going away getting some practice at, a, at another church, Christ our Savior, in Torrance. So, a lot of the time when I'm not here, that's, that's where I'm at. There's other times I, I go on vacation. Um, but wherever I go, I'm only in one place. Um, but we have a God, as the bulletin says, who is here, there, and everywhere. So, and that's our God. In three persons, this is our annual celebration of Trinity Sunday. God the Father who created us and everything in our world and in the heavens. He's the first person of the Trinity. Then there's Jesus Christ the Son who showed us God and revealed who God is. And then there's the Holy Spirit whom Jesus asked God the Father to send to us after the risen Lord Jesus Christ had ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. God will do anything for the human beings that he created in his divine image. And God's, or today's gospel passage tells us how far God will go in that classic verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God and Jesus made the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world so that the world might be saved through belief in Jesus Christ. That was the subject of Peter's Pentecost sermon which we read and was preached on last week. Our God is in the salvation business. God wants to restore his people. He wants to restore his creation. And in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who makes salvation available to every person of every race, of every nation, of every walk of life. And in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus tells the story of God bringing salvation to his people, Israel. We're going to go back a little bit to, to uh, Genesis. If you want, you can follow 
in your Bibles, although I guess I won't always name the, the passages, but um, the nation of Israel began when God blessed Jacob in chapter 35 of Genesis, and he changed Jacob's name to Israel, because Jacob the deceiver, which is what his name meant, and, and he lived that out in certain aspects of his life, that was in the past. And God changed his name to Israel, and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation. Indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, your fathers, and I will give the land to your future descendants. And as we know, Jacob had 12 sons, and he had a favorite. And that son was Joseph, and Joseph was his favorite because that was the first son born to his most beloved wife, Rachel. He had had 10 sons prior to that. And we read, as Genesis moves along, at the age of 17 that Joseph was sold into slavery by his 10 older brothers who hated him because his father favored him and Joseph also would tell them his dreams that his brothers would bow down to him. But because, and then he ended up, you know, he got traded once or twice after he was sold, and he ended up a slave in Egypt. But because God was with him and gave him the power to interpret dreams, he became King Pharaoh's top administrator who ran the most powerful country in the world. And God did all this so that Israel and his 70 children and grandchildren would end up, you know, could survive the seven-year famine that was going to come later on. And that's how his 12 sons, which we know as the tribes and the patriarchs, they ended up in Egypt because of this famine. And I'm not going to, I don't have time to go into details unless you want to stay into the afternoon. We can do that. But I don't think you do. A couple people have already told me that. Um, (laughs) I won't name names. I will not. Pharaoh, because Joseph was his top lieutenant, he was his most important administrator, he ran things for him, he gave Israel the best land in Egypt and told Joseph that your father and brothers will live off the fat of the land. And Genesis chapter 47, verses 27 to 28 say that Israel settled down in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property and they flourished and they became a large company of people. And Jacob lived there till he died, all told 17 years. And then as Genesis ends, we read that Joseph and all his brothers died. But Israel was very fruitful and their population multiplied rapidly. And then The Pharaoh king died and another one came to power, but he didn't know who Joseph was. And he didn't know that Joseph had saved Egypt from seven years of famine. And because the Israelites outnumbered the Egyptians, Pharaoh saw a threat there to their potential well-being if they paired up with other nations to overthrow Pharaoh. So he enslaved the uh, the Israelites, the men, into hard labor. But the harder the Israelites worked, the more babies, Hebrew babies, were born. 
And it got so bad that Pharaoh ordered that all Hebrew baby boys would be killed. First, he went through the midwives and said, you know, if it's a boy, kill him. They wouldn't do it. So then he said, throw all the baby boys, the Hebrew baby boys, into the Nile River so they would drown. And that's how the man that we read about in Exodus chapter 3, that's how he ended up in the Nile River prior to chapter 3. Because, because Moses' mother, when he was born, knew that he was going to have to be thrown into the river to die, he hid him for about three months, but then he could, she couldn't hide the baby anymore. So she made a little basket boat for the little, tod, the, the little baby and placed Moses in the reeds at the edge of the Nile River. And Pharaoh's daughter went to the Nile one day as she customarily would and was bathing. And then she saw this little boat in the reeds in the river. So she has the, the little basket boat brought to her and she looks inside and she sees this beautiful three-month-old baby. And she says, this is one of the Hebrew boys. And she didn't want to kill him. So she had, as it turned out, because Moses' older sister, Miriam, was watching all this, that Moses' mother was able to wean him. And actually, she got paid for doing it. And then, once that had been completed, Moses then became the daughter of, of Pharaoh. And that's how Moses continued to live, in spite of the instructions you know, from Pharaoh. And so, as Exodus 2, we move quickly from that to then Moses becomes a man. And Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that Moses went out and he saw his own people, the Hebrews, and the forced labor, labor their slavery. And then he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew, so he killed the Egyptian. And he hit him in the sand. And I'm sure he goes like this. Nobody's going to know the difference. So the next day, two Hebrews are fighting. And so he tells the one who's attacking the other to stop. And then that Hebrew attacker said, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses said, uh-oh, I got to run. And Pharaoh was, gonna, was trying to kill him. So he fled. And he went out into the wilderness to a place called Midian in the Sinai Peninsula. And there he stayed for 40 years. Yes, 40 years. And when we get to the end of chapter 2, we read that the king of Egypt died. This is important because the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, wants to kill Moses. So now he's gone. Hopefully he's forgotten about He won't know about Moses. And then we also read, it says, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and they cried out. They had been enslaved for 430 years. And they were crying to God and these cries ascended to God. I'm sure there probably may have been less cries because if you've been waiting all your life, you've been, you were born into slavery, you're in slavery, you know it's been going on for 400 or more years. And two, the Egyptians and all the other nations worshipped all kinds of other gods. But God did not forget Israel. And we read that God listened to their groanings. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He had told all of them, I'm going to make you a great nation. And God saw 
what was going on with Israel and, and the people. And God understood. God knew their situation. In this, we read that God hasn't forgotten about them, just like God doesn't forget about us. No matter what our situation that we may be going through, no matter what in the world may upset us, and, and certainly, you know, there's all kinds of things, and, you know, we look around the world, but we have our, our issues, our challenges here. Something that's really challenging is the shootings in the schools. Our children. We just had, we had another one. Thankfully, nobody was killed, I believe, on, on Friday. God decided he was going to help his people. So as Exodus chapter 3 begins, we learn that Moses was a shepherd. Well, now Moses, you know, grew up in the Egyptian court, and now he's a shepherd. And a shepherd is not a, the, the Egyptians certainly didn't like the profession of being a shepherd. It was probably the most common you know, job for the Hebrews, but it wasn't looked at highly upon by the Egyptians. It was also just a you know, common job. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But then we read that he's, he's tending somebody else's sheep. He doesn't own any of these sheep. Remember, he's been there for 40 years. And he quickly, after he got there, you know, he met who would be his wife, and that's his father-in-law. He's been tending his sheep. And so, you know, as he would do it every day, he would lead the sheep out to pasture. Um, but this day, he went pretty, and it may have been days, that he went far from where he normally did. And probably don't know why he, you know, in his mind, why he went there. I think we, we'll know, we know later, we, having read the passage, we know why he went where he did. But uh, the, the pastures were probably pretty barren. So he went places where there was enough, you know, grass and, and feed. For, for the sheep to, to feed off of. So he went to fertile grounds. But whatever his motivations for why he picked where he went to that day, we know that God led him there so that God could reveal himself and speak to Moses. Has God ever led you anywhere that you didn't necessarily plan on or expect so that he could speak to you? So that you could hear him so that I could hear him. I'm sure God, God, I know, speaks to me a lot more than I hear him. I know there's, there's stuff I miss. But God took Moses out there. And then right away in verse 2, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire within a bush. That's a pretty amazing sentence. Now, we have the angel of the Lord, and we read about the angel of the Lord in other places. But as we see in the verses to follow, this is the Lord. Sometimes it's one of the Lord's representatives, but then it moves. It says the angel of the Lord, and then you've got this bush that isn't burning up, and then the Lord speaks to Moses. So Moses does what we all would do when you see, because when there's fire and there's a bush, the bush doesn't stand a chance. The bush is going to burn up. But it doesn't do that. So Moses goes over to look at the bush. And then when he's there, God speaks to him. Moses, Moses. And Moses answered, here I am. And so the Lord then told Moses, don't come any closer. Because 
it was believed and God had even said so in Scripture. You can't get, you, 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 there's got to be a distance between you and this holy, great, and awesome God. And other nations believe this too. Gods were above humans. And then the Lord told Moses to remove his dirty sandals from his feet because he was standing on holy ground. Wherever God is, is holy. We serve and have a holy and mighty God. And then the Lord identified himself to Moses. And I, I don't know prior to this, I don't know how much Moses knew God. Remember, he grew up in Egypt. They didn't worship this God. And he was in Midian, out in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. And the Lord then identified who he was. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Moses then hid his face because he was face to face with God. He was afraid to look at God, lest he die. And then as we go on, so God has called out to this man Moses. Wasn't anything that would appear at this time to distinguish him. You know, he's very distinguished to those of us who have this Bible and who come after the fact. But at the time, this guy was no different than you and me and every other ordinary person. And that's, that's, that's great news. Because it isn't about our talents, our abilities. It's about the God who wants our availability. And that's what we're going to see as we move from chapter 3, verse 7, and then we move into chapter 4. And if you want to stick around this afternoon, I'll go beyond to 5 and 6 and 7. No, I, I won't do that. Um, in verses 7 to 10, you know, God tells Moses, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries. I know they've suffered. I've come down to rescue them from their slavery to the Egyptians. I will free them and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. That flowing with milk and honey tells us how fruitful that is. Honey is sweet, sugary. Who likes sugar? A lot of people do. Milk, fat and rich, nourishing. And that wasn't all. Moses, okay. But the kick, well, God goes even one step further and he says, guess what, Moses? I'm sending you to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So how would you, what would you think if God had said that to you? Okay, I'm with you all the way. Let's go. Is that what Moses did? No, not at all. And, and, and for him, Many of us, hopefully most of us, we know God. This guy, God had never shown up. He doesn't have scriptures. So Moses doesn't say, you know, whatever you say, let's go. He first asks a natural question, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now before we get too hard on Moses... Has anybody done what I do when God tells me to do something and not do it or not do it right away? Am I the only one? I, I do sometimes do it. 
But so he, he said, who am I? And also looking to his abilities, like I do and I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people do. But my, God says, that's no problem. I will certainly be with you. I'm going with you. You're not going by yourself. So as I know at least one person in this room does, I'm going to ask him some more questions because I'm not so sure about this. Okay, first I got to go to the Israelites and tell them what I'm going to do. And then they're, of course, going to ask me what God told you this. And that's really not a bad question in the world he was in because there were many gods that people worshipped in, in, in many nations. And so God told him later on in chapter 3, I think it's verse 14, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites that I am has sent me to you. And those word, that, that word in the Hebrew is the word for I guess it's the conjugation for the word to be, I am, he is, being two of them. And that's really those, what he says there, it's just, I am. I mean, there may be all these other gods, but, but I am the one. I am the true God. I don't need any other name. This is my name forever. And then for good measure, he tells him, he repeats it, that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent you. So they're gonna, they'll know, because that's who, that's who I am. And they know, they know that name. Well, Moses goes on, and he goes, what if they won't believe me? And they won't obey me? They won't even think, you've got to be lying. The Lord didn't appear to me. So God then foreshadows some of the signs that he is going to perform as part of his plan to free the Israelites from the Egyptians. First, you know, Moses has a shepherd's staff, so he says, you know, put down that shepherd's staff on the ground and it turns to a snake and then it turns back again. And then, so if that's not enough, leprosy was one of the worst diseases. People would be banned from the camp. Put your hand in your cloak, pull it out. The hand is white as snow, put it back in, and now it's back to show them how powerful I am, and if you don't believe this, you can believe this now. But that wasn't enough for Moses. Then he comes back to him. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow. I'm hesitant in speech. Moses spoke a lot later on. So we don't know. Scholars debate you know, whether he had a speech impediment or not. But you know, one said, he, you see him speaking a whole lot in, in Exodus, in Numbers, certainly in, in Deuteronomy. And no problem. God says, of course, I know your mouth. I made your mouth. I know what you can do. I know what you can't do. Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And then his answer, he gave a bad one to God here because God had used up every excuse. I think it's chapter 4, verse 16. I don't want to go. Please send someone else. And once again, am I the only one who hasn't done that or delays the obedience to God. Um, I think I may have said this in some sermon in the past. Um, I lived in New York for 12 years, and from 1997 to the beginning of 2000, God had planted a seed for going to seminary. I'd done a few things to kind of, you know, maybe explore that a little bit, 
nothing big. And then in January 2000, I was in Pittsburgh, and I was there for a week with a class, and we were, it's a, it was a church, a city in the poor, and we'd go out and minister to the homeless people on the streets. And so each night we would go out, we would pray for the people that we, we might run into, and then for what we were going to do. And then the last night, in addition to that, we prayed for each other. And then I was paired with the men, and then actually the professor of this class, he prayed, and I had, you know, the thoughts of seminary had been in my mind. Um, and then he prays over me, and he says, you know your call. You've doubted your call, but you know your call. And then I'm like, it's only one other person from my church. Nobody knows. I'm thinking about this. I go, God is speaking to me, you know, right here. Well, it took me two and a half years before I moved to, I moved to Pasadena to go to Fuller Theological Seminary. So I wasn't exactly the, you know, quick on the spot. I was a lot slower than, uh, than Moses. So I certainly can get that. But God, and like in this case, God doesn't let you off the hook. If God wants to do something in and through you, he will keep doing that. And that's what Moses finally gets the point because God was angry with him. Okay, you can't speak. You don't want to go. Aaron, your brother, he's a priest. He can speak. He can speak well. And you know what? By the way, he's coming to see you right now. And I'm going to teach both of you what to do, what to say. He's going to speak to the people. He will be your spokesman. But I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to you. So you're going to have to tell him what I tell you to say. Now go. And now this time, Moses went. He went back to his father-in-law and said, I need to go. And he did. As I said, God didn't deviate from his plans to use Moses because he had a people to save. This is the greatest thing that God does. And also, that land of flowing with milk and honey, he, wasn't, he was going to get them out of a terrible situation. He was also going to not just do that, but he was going to put them into a great situation, give them their own land that was rich and abundant. And what we see through this, and I, I talked about what what God had to do with Moses. You know, when we read Scripture, Moses is one of the great men of the Bible. But Moses didn't start that way. And it was God's encounters, this first, these first encounters, and others that transformed Moses into the compassionate, courageous man of God who calls down plagues on Egypt and leads his people to safety. God does the work. But Moses has to go before Pharaoh. That is putting your life in your hands when you're telling, you're telling people, my God said, our God says, let my people go out so we can worship him. And he went back and back. And it wasn't just to go out for a, you know, let's just go out for three days even though that, that's what is written. No, that meant we're, we're leaving. You know, he could have been, would have been killed for something like that. So God accomplished great things in and through Moses. And he wants to do the same, you know, for us. And as we see with Moses, Moses didn't go out far out into the wilderness thinking, hey, God's going to show up today. God's going to speak to me. No, God's grace can break in to our lives when we least expect him to do so. And what we see here is how God takes the initiative. And I don't know about you, but that's a great thing because I am limited in my abilities. 
you know, my faith while growing stronger only goes so far. God just continues to help build it. And God does some things. He speaks to us to take us to another place. There are times in my past, and, and it may have been a time this week, where God is just kind of, God speaks into my heart or does something that kind of, I'm here, and then i got to just step over something to get to somewhere else. It's not, there's like a little gap that, that I'm just sitting behind. But God has, God has done that, whether it be, you know, open up my heart to his love more and to, to love out to other people. And then, you know, this past Wednesday, when, you know, my, my boss asked, you know, in our leadership team meeting, you know, are you doing your best? Something, you know, like that. And um, I work pretty hard at work. I think I, I do, I give a pretty good effort at it. But there are things in there I go, I'm not doing. And then that evening, it just happened to be that I went to a philanthropy networking event that happens periodically. And there was this ultra marathoner named Lisa Smith Batchin. She's my age. I don't know if any of you have heard of her. And um, she lives in, uh, I guess it's uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is a fantastic place. Well, she runs these ultra marathons. And one of them that she talked about, I think she's run it nine or ten times. It's the Badwater Ultra Marathon. And it's described as the world's toughest race. It's a 135-mile course that starts at 279 feet below sea level in the Badwater Basin in California's Death Valley and ends at an elevation of 8,360 feet. And I believe they run this in July. It's either this or another race when it's like 120 degrees. This is crazy stuff. But what was interesting, what the lady does is she was told she was a bad runner when she was in high school and she didn't make the cross-country team. And so she goes, I, I won't run, I'm terrible. And then finally, as a senior in college, her roommate just kept, you know, come run this turkey trot race with me. Come run, come run, come run. So she finally, you know, I'll just go and watch. And, and then she did, but then, you know, she kept saying, you know, go run. So she did, and she won the race. And then she kept running races. And then she said, I would run angry. Because people said, this guy said, I'm bad. Nobody should tell you that you can't run on the cross-country team. And so she would win all these races. But then finally what happened is she started running for something else she would run to raise money for charity. And she raised, she's raised millions for different charities. And she does, she says, I don't, I'm not just a person who stays with one charity, I just go to others. And I asked her when it was question and answer, how do you decide which charities to go? And she goes, you know, God tells me. And, you know, some people may put something in my mind, but God tells me. And there are some great shots of pictures that she showed of her where, like, one, she's all up in her gear, and then she's just, you know, like this, and she's looking up at God. And then when she finished one of these bad waters, she got on her knees, she has a picture, you know, and she's looking up to, the, up to the sky. And she was talking about her faith. That's an incredible amount of miles to go. I'm sure almost everybody in this room goes, how can a human body go that far? But it, it has. And, um, and she does it for something bigger than herself, because it wasn't, she wouldn't be doing it if she had just been doing it for herself. And that's, you know, while God did great things in Moses, he did things because of his love for the nation of Israel. And all of us have testimonies where we've made a difference in somebody else's life, we've shared Christ, somebody else has shared Christ with us, has helped us grow as disciples. 
Because God wants him and his presence in our lives to transform the way that we, that we view the challenges that he sets before us, the challenges that, that life brings us, even though he, may, he doesn't want us to suffer, but he will help us through that. And, some, and there are some sufferings that, that are so bad, and some sufferings aren't going to go away until we leave this earth. But God's got an eternal perspective. And then... What's also encouraging is the patience that God had with Moses. I mean, he was calling Aaron to come. You know, he could have just said, after time one, maybe even especially when he says, I'm not doing this. Okay, boom, you're gone, Moses. I'm going to do somebody else. No, he didn't. And he doesn't with us. Because this God is concerned with rescuing and saving his people. And... I could go on, but I'm not. I've gone on longer than I was planning on. But God is in the transformation, the rescue, the, the salvation business. Looks like I hear an alarm. Somebody also, also has said, I'm done. Um, <laughs> but as I do bring this to a close, I want to read from the introduction that Eugene Peterson writes in his Message Bible to the book of Exodus. He says, the human race is in trouble. We've been in trouble for a long time. Enormous energies have been and continue to be expended by many, many men and women to get us out of the trouble we are in, to clean up the world's mess. The skill, the perseverance, the intelligence, the devotion of the people who put their shoulders to the wheel to pull us out of the muck, parents and teachers, healers and counselors, rulers and politicians, writers and pastors are impressive. But at the center and core of this work is God. The most comprehensive term for what God is doing to get us out of the mess we are in is salvation. Salvation is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Salvation is the biggest word in the vocabulary of the people of God. The Exodus is a powerful and dramatic and true story of God working salvation. And the Gospels are that same story even taken to another level of Jesus Christ working salvation in God's people to all who believe. May we go forth in these, the promise and the opportunity that God gives us to be in relationship with him and to live with him forever. Amen.